While many internships and job offers and career plans right now might be on hold, I want to share with you that all of this unexpected extra time can be a perfect opportunity to create and innovate your next chapter professionally. Maybe consider developing a set of resources or goals or accomplishments that you really want to focus on right now. Or maybe brainstorm projects with valued friends to discuss and ideate these thoughts as you move forward. Today, my guests are two smart and insightful professionals. One is a recent college grad. Lizzie Nelson learned the highs and the lows of the entrepreneurial world, and she chats about those experiences. My experience gave me case studies to be able to say, you know what, I've seen something go completely wrong here. Let's avoid that. And our second guest, Austin Branson, launched an unusual and very innovative company 15 years ago with his business partner. They were originally roommates at Bowdoin, and started this business in his dad's garage. We might not have gotten here, the type of business that we do, if we did it in any sort of different way, if we didn't make those mistakes. I'm Sandy Golinkin, founder and CEO of Raising the Bar, and I want to welcome you to the Career Whisperer. I'm here to help you solidify your purpose, also spark your self-confidence, and help you achieve the highest standards of professional excellence. The purpose of our episode today, which was taped during COVID days, is to talk about your options when you're looking for your first full-time job. And one of the things I very much like to talk about is the possible forks in the road. To work for a more established, more secure company, it can offer you great entry-level jobs, but a slower trajectory, not as much exposure in the beginning, but again, great financial security. Or possibly go and work at a startup. And the good news when you work at a startup is your trajectory is much faster. You get more responsibility, you get more exposure, And it's also usually a smaller workspace. So you are listening to other meetings, other phone calls, other work that's being done. And it's a tremendous opportunity to learn. And maybe six, 12, 18 months from now, it closes. Guaranteed, even if it closes, you will have had tremendous experience that will be most impressive on your resume and your interviews as you move forward to your next chapter. This point in your life in your early 20s is a good opportunity to try various possibilities. It's what I call your dress rehearsal, your opportunity to figure out what interests you, what excites you, and what really motivates you. Lizzie, let's let's just talk a little bit for a moment about your background with regards to St. Andrews, what you studied, and then tell us a little bit about what was your first job out of college. I graduated in 2014 from the University of St. Andrews. I studied international relations there. 
the school system is a little different over in the UK, much more self-focused. And that's when I really liked this idea of, okay, what's the problem? What's the solution? Obviously, slightly different academic context. But when I graduated, I knew based off of that, I really wanted to get into a space where I could wear a lot of hats and really start looking for those, once again, problems and those solutions. And that's how I entered the startup world. So when you graduated from St. Andrews, did you come back to the United States? So I actually originally wanted to stay in London. When I started college, I used to get an automatic two-year visa for going to school over there. And that ended my junior year. Oops. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) So I, I was excited. I come from a very close family. The idea of being closer to home was great. So I started talking to the Career Center a little bit there. Um, They had some resources in the U.S., but as you'd imagine, in Scotland, not the same as here. Right. Uh, But they put me in touch with somebody who had graduated the year above me and actually was in New York City working at a very tiny startup. He said, you know what, I don't know if this is going to work, if they have anything available, but why don't you guys just get on a call and talk? And uh, we hit it off, and they offered me a position as an intern in New York. They weren't really hiring anyone at that time. Didn't think I was going to like New York. I thought this was a three-month-and-done thing, and then I was going to evaluate and see what was really next. But I ended up falling in love with the company, and almost more surprising for me, fell in love with New York. Been here for the last five years. Glad you fell in love with New York. It's one of my favorite places. But I'm more curious, tell me about... Your internship, what what were you doing for them? And, and were you being paid or tell us about um, it? So I was not being paid, which is part of the reason I did a lot of couch surfing. But my internship, and this is one thing that I really liked about startups, which is they kind of throw you directly into it. Unlike some startups where they have an organized project of here, you're here for three months. This is what we need you to accomplish during this time period. It was very much all hands on deck. Uh, We're throwing you onto this project, but if you see another gap, jump onto it. But I remember a fair amount of them was doing kind of the manual back-end data cleaning. But if I recall, I even got to talk to customers pretty early on, which is unusual for an internship, especially being straight out of college. How many people were at the company? There were nine people when I started, including myself. So very early stage startup. They had passed their angel funding, so I think that they had gotten really, really early, and they had been to Y Combinator, which is a really amazing program based out of California that takes in a bunch of startup founders, essentially, and helps them figure out some of the basics of starting their company. And it's normally seen as sort of a silver gold star in the startup world that, okay, you've gotten the training, you're going to you're going to be okay. And how long were you there? How many months? So I was offered a position after I think it was about two months. And then I proceeded to be at that company for three years. We always joke that one year in the startup world is a decade anywhere else. Things move so, so quickly. And you do have to wear so many hats and transition so quickly. I learned a lot there. And kind of to fast track, what ended up happening is uh, eventually I gotten so used to this really, really quick pace of everything. I basically stopped learning, which is like the big no-no. You don't stop learning. There was no more immediate growth for me based off of where the company was. And I was like, okay, it's time. I need, this has been a great company. I've learned a lot. I'd seen the culture ebb and flow drastically in terms of positivity and negativity. And that happens much more quickly in a startup because you have a lot less people. So things change quite faster. Um, So I left there to start the customer success team at a startup called Franklin, and that went out of business after a month, and that's when I came and saw you. So, Lizzie, when we very first met, I believe you were at a stage where you were having a big decision to make, and you were sort of torn between your incredible 
delight in working for startups because it gave you tremendous exposure. It let you roll up your sleeves and have a lot of responsibility, learning a lot. But it wasn't exactly financially secure. (laughs) Yes. So tell us a little bit about that. So I did have to kind of make that decision. And what I decided to do is not leave the startup world completely, but try something a little bit bigger. So I ended up going to a 150-person company, still small, still startup-y, but a little bit further along than what I was used to. And they had an office that they were starting in the U.S. that was maybe 20 people. So the financial security was a little bit there, although we definitely went through some restructurings while I was there. But it was a little bit more secure in the sense that I knew my paycheck was coming and that I would have fair warning if anything were to happen. And how long were you there? I was there for two years and actually left two weeks ago. Um, I'm going back to get my MBA at Cornell with the idea of going even bigger to get a sense of what that looks like, um, but really to round out my education. So if, if I could turn the clock back and take you to graduation day at St. Andrews, would you take the same path that you took? I would. I think that although I'm thinking of pivoting bigger and to get a sense of what that is, and who knows, maybe I'll be back in the startup world, the time to take those risks, the time to say, okay, financially this might not be 100%, is when you're right out of school and you're dependent on just you and you can make do with a lot less than you think you need. My starting salary was $35,000 in New York City. I mean, you really have to be budget conscious if if you're gonna stretch that. I hear this a lot from more seasoned professionals, which is about the whole judgment factor. And that, yes, having a good education is important, but there's just something that's very, very different in the workplace with regards to being able to deal with a crisis, with regards to being able to make very quick, important decisions with regards to knowing when you can absolutely make the call or when you should go to someone else and seek their advice. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you learned about sort of what I call EQ, otherwise known as emotional quotient, and what you learned in your your two startup gigs? I think that's everything. I think it's judgment call in terms of EQ on how to answer an email. Um, What do you do during pushback? How do you react? I'm trying to remember when I was right out of school, someone sent me a frustrated email about using our product in some way, and I was just had no idea how to approach it. And I was trying to think through, because there's the balance, right, of of being firm, because you only have so much leadway, but also understanding where they're coming from and learning how to think that way, how to write that way. The more you're in the business world, the more you're able to draw upon past examples, too, even if you don't necessarily realize that you're doing it. How much of it is in the beginning of being basically a human sponge? Um, I mentioned earlier that startups, you have to expect to do entry-level jobs. I think part of what's different in a startup world is that there are, you're also going to do stuff that are above your pay grade and you're going to work with different departments. And so you might be working at your desk working on a client presentation, but across from you somebody is working on the marketing or hearing how they're just describing your overall business and the business goals and how you're able to help them with whatever their problem may be. You learn a lot from those types of conversations as well. What was the most difficult thing about working at a startup? I think part of it is the 
reliability in some ways. Um, we talked a lot about how things change really, really quickly, but also like restructures, they happen. I, I hit two of them at my last company. And I also think it gets you comfortable with like that big bad F word, and I mean failure. I think failure has a longer life. We remember it more. It shapes more of our decisions than necessarily our successes. But I think being in a startup, you get really comfortable with that because it happens a lot. And you have to take those risks, and that means you're going to fail most of the time. If you are giving advice on how to best suss out a startup that you're considering working for, yes, how do you figure out if you, you don't want them to go belly up in the first six months you go? Yes. Any way to, to figure that out? The smaller the company the lower in funding on the ladder, and I'll explain what that means in a second, I think the more uh, volatile it's going to be. You're more likely to see failure. And what I mean by that is I mentioned angel funding. The way that startups work is they tend to get rounds of financial investment or funding from whether it's a VC, a venture capital fund, or actual early stages, it might be individuals. And so the way that ladder works is seed funding or, or angel funding, and that's those very small amounts. Then there's Series A, Series B, Series C, and it kind of goes up from there. Got it. I would say you definitely want something that's past Series A, ideally in a Series B world. And that just means that they have enough funding that you're not worried where normally where the money is going to come from. I also think what I've learned is the CEO of of a startup steers their direction. If they're coming from a sales background, they're going to be a sales-focused organization. Sales, numbers, uh, metrics are going to come first. If they're from a product background, their their product will come first. They'll back sell, so they might prioritize that side of the business. So just be aware of that type of thing when you're going in. I would also check to see who's funding the organization. Uh-huh. Uh, make sure they're reliable. And then ask questions. Just make sure the questions you're asking aren't something you could find on their website. And so ask questions like, What's your roadmap? And then ask about values and ask about all those types of things to make sure it's, it's a company that you can see yourself working for and you, you see the company having a future as well. I'm a big believer in networking and connections and building up a good contact list. I'd love your perspective on how networking and connections are helpful or not so much in yes. the startup world. It is huge, and I would say bigger in the startup world than any other place. And that's because startups change faster. It's really helpful at the beginning to start like a Google spreadsheet where you keep track of who have you talked to, full name, email address, phone number if you have it, how do you know them, like what's your connection point, Um, and then any tips that you've talked to them about, anything you've learned. And that could be... This person knows a lot about marketing, or it could be this person really likes chocolate. And that can just give you a starting point when you talk to them again, whenever that might be. And I would almost even keep track of that. When's the last time you talked to them? Because three years might seem like a really long time, but also in networking, sometimes three years go by and you haven't talked to that person. And it gives you a sense of that kind of information. When you do get to talk to someone and ask them about their career, dive in. This is really an opportunity for you to ask them about what they like and they don't like, to get advice. And then at the end of that conversation, ask them if there's three other people that they think you can talk to. And keep track of that. Circle back. Make sure you write your thank you notes. That is huge. I couldn't agree with you more. (laughs) And that applies to any time anyone helps you along the way. I think it's so important and it's so undervalued. I completely Um, agree. And I also agree with you about getting three names. When 
I first started looking for a job when I graduated from Trinity College. My mentor said to me, whenever you go on an interview, even if they say, we're so sorry we don't have anything for you, say to the person, do you have one to two, three people you could introduce me to? Because then it's the gift that keeps giving. Exactly. You, you never run out of contacts. And I love your suggestion of keeping a list with good notes about your contacts because you may not reach out to them again for three, 10 years, but it's good to know who you've made touch with because when you need resources, it's wonderful to have a well-organized list. You talked a little bit about sort of the roses and thorns of one's early career and how if you keep that information, it can help. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I thought it was such a very smart idea on your part. Yeah, so this goes back to the idea that you never know what life's going to hold for you and you might need a job at any time. Keep a running list of all of your successes and failures. And that's really helpful for two reasons. One, you can look back and say, okay, this fit, this partner didn't work because of this reason. I'm not going to do that again. And two, when you're building out your resume or you're going for your next job interview, they're going to ask you, what did you like? What did you accomplish? When was a time that you failed? Everyone's favorite question. And what did you do about it? And being able to directly own up and say, I did, and here's what I did about it is a lot easier than sitting down and trying to rack your brain of everything you've done over the last X amount of years. Were you ever tempted to quit? You know, yes. Because <laughs> I, I often find myself begging my clients to hang in there. And yes. I think it's hard being new. I think it takes a long time. I think it takes six to 12 months to not be new anymore. And I think in the beginning, it's awkward. And it's embarrassing when you don't know where the restroom is, you don't know where the water cooler is, or you don't know what to wear to work. And I think sometimes people get overwhelmed by the, the difficulty of being new. And I'd love to hear your perspective on that. Yeah, I actually, and I, I tell friends or people that ask me for advice, I actually think the hardest place in a company is three to four months in. And I think the reason that's the hardest is you feel, you know where the bathroom is, you know where the water cooler is, you know the basics, and it can feel like you've been there for a really long time, and you feel like you should know everything, and you don't. And no one senior is expecting you to know everything at that point, but there can be this drop in your stomach of, crap, I messed that up, or I don't know where that is, or can I ask someone? Always ask. Just know that a lot of times it's more helpful to hang in there. If you really think something's going really south, that's maybe when you, once again, put your feelers out and get a sense of what's out there, what your backup plan is. But most of the time, it's better if you can kind of hang in there. And that means normally doing something outside of work that keeps you going. Whatever it is that kind of clears your mind, make sure you're doing it through those tough times. It will help you not quit. <laughs> My guest is one of my more favorite people on the planet, and that is Austin Branson, who is one of the co-founders of Smathers and Branson. Thanks for having me, Sandy. Very, very nice of you to join us. How is life in D.C. amidst COVID-19? Well, we're all adjusting. It's a, a, a new situation, but um, our little family is enjoying some quiet time at home. Um, I think making the best of it and um little, little girls uh, we have a, a baby and then a five-year-old and a seven-year-old and they're all just 
super resilient, having a good time. So, Aust, how old is Smathers and Branson as of today? As of today, we, we started the company about 15 years ago. So we graduated from Bowdoin College in 2004 and launched the business right out of um, undergrad. So Peter moved down to Washington and we started it from my parents' basement. So this to me sort of gives new meaning to entrepreneurial. You guys, I know, did sort of the classic working in your dad's basement or garage. I'm, I'm curious for you to share with our listeners how you got the idea and how you and your partner, Peter, had the courage and the determination and the um, spunk to do this. It was actually my 21st birthday when I met your goddaughter, um, Maisie. <laughs> and for my 21st birthday, she gifted me a needlepoint belt that she had made that had pink elephants and martinis on it. And might not have been exactly the, the accessory I would have picked, but the more I wore it, the more compliments I got. People sort of asked. It was unique for sure. So I began just kind of realizing that this was something people noticed. And over the course of the rest of our college, my uh, friend's girlfriend actually made him one as well. A total coincidence, disconnected that, that same idea. And so one night when we were sitting around in college, like spent a lot of time talking about crazy business ideas. Needle, we, we began talking about the needlepoint belts that our girlfriends had made us and how people noticed. And they were these accessories that you couldn't buy in a store. And why not? And so we started asking the questions of what's behind this. And we looked into it a lot and found out that they actually cost nearly $300 to, in material cost to, to put the thing together, not to mention maybe 40 hours of your time or, or give or take, depending on how uh, adept of a needle pointer you were. We thought that sounded very generous. And, and maybe in this growing manufacturing-based economy and world, we could figure out a way to do that better and create the product and, and put it on the market. What was the scariest or most difficult part of the first six to 12 months of starting this company? The biggest unknown question was, how do you make these things, right? Because Maisie wasn't going to be our manufacturing force. We had been eagerly telling everyone we knew about this concept. Um, hey, we're going to start this needlepoint belt company. It's going to be so great. And we got a lot of uh-huh, uh-huh <laughs> from different people. and. It didn't really connect with the general public that we talked to as much as it um, did with our own hearts. So we kept talking and kept talking and kept telling people. And finally, we ran into a, a few folks who really wanted to help us, um, but they gave us some some things to chase down. And, and one really kind woman, Gina Mulhern, she was in the import-export business and gave us a stack of business cards and, and basically said, hey, I go to a lot of international trade fairs and here are a bunch of vendors that that you could reach out to. And that was a gold to us when we were that age. And we're connected with this guy in Vietnam. He had no, uh, acknowledged that he had no idea how to do needlepoint or what needlepoint was. We're giving him ideas and kind of descriptions and designs as best as we could show them. The samples that we had had this gentleman in Vietnam make went to Peter in Maine. Peter called me and said, you know, Austin, these really aren't that good. I don't think this is worth it. I think this is, I think we should actually try to get real jobs. And, oh no! And I said, "Oh, Peter, come on! It'll be fine. We can fix it. It's it, it, uh, it's just their first try." Peter moved down. He actually didn't bring the samples with him. His mom sent them. They arrived, and I looked at them. I said, "Peter, these are awful. We have to get new jobs." <laughs> they weren't even needlepoint. They were kind of painted canvas. It was, couldn't have sold them for a dollar. We were terrified. I was terrified at that at that moment when I saw that we were so so far away from a decent product. 
Tell us a little bit about that belt. What what was it? What happened next? I'm assuming you got a package and you realized that things were going to be okay. Peter and I spent the better part of maybe a month uh, working every day in a needlepoint shop in Washington, and so we'd we'd go and we'd spend time with these wonderful older ladies, probably the only 20, 20 some twenty something men going into their shop, and we'd just go pick their brains, talk about needlepoint, and got everything ready, figured out what kind of materials we needed, who were the right vendors to buy from. And then we went over to Vietnam. We knew that we would have to go to teach them. And so Peter and I over to Vietnam, landed and met Man, this this guy we'd been corresponding with. He took us to the village where he grew up. And that's where he was sort of the village hero. He grew up in this small rice farming village outside of Hanoi in the north of Vietnam. And was sort of the one young boy who did well enough and went to college. His vision when, when Vietnam had opened up he started his own company and wanted to bring work back to the village where he grew up and his family and friends. So we spent the better part of about three weeks in that village um, every day, meeting the people, teaching them stitch after stitch how to do needlepoint. After three weeks, they were, well, after probably three hours, they might have been better than we were. There you were in Vietnam teaching these people how to needlepoint a belt. So you had one item and probably a group of, I don't know, 10 or less people. I'm curious today how many different items there are and how many people are working for you in Vietnam. So we've grown, we started with belts and, and keychains and we've gradually added other accessories. I mean, we kind of view ourselves as this gifting, but we sell keychains and wallets and hats and coaster sets, things for the home in, in Vietnam. It, we've grown the workforce to, depending on the time of year, somewhere around 2000. I heard that you've got 20 to 30 SKUs, but 1,000, 10,000, 40,000, how many items do they ship you every year? I think last, last year's total, total items were a little over half a million individual pieces. So if you think back to on your very first visit and you're teaching them how to needlepoint, and then we think about today, what are what are sort of the the biggest lessons with regards to getting you where you all are today and the tremendous success? What are the lessons you would impart to other people? And I ask this partially because you're an exceptionally successful and wonderful duo of entrepreneurship, but also I'm a big believer that during these difficult COVID times the people who are going to be really successful are the ones who are innovative during COVID and figure out how to start new businesses that are needed for this new, new normal world we're about to build. And I'd love to hear some of the, the wisdom and lessons you've learned in the last 10, 15 years. So I think there are a lot of different reasons that go into any business about why it works and doesn't work. The most important thing was we we were the only ones doing it. And it's for good reason. It's re- frankly very, very difficult to set up a company making needlepoint items. You can't fake it. You can't do it by machine. There's, there's nothing, no other way than to start very, very small like we did. It, it was critical. We wouldn't have done something that was a crowded industry. So we wanted to be unique and we wanted to be the best you could possibly be quality wise those, those things uh, concepts transfer pretty well to a lot, whatever kind of category of a business you want to be in most entrepreneurs that we run into these days have this need to 
launch as a big company. And so they fundraise, they need to borrow heavily. And that creates a lot of pressure. When we were 22, we would have made huge mistakes, right? I mean, we've, we've made a lot of mistakes along the way, but they were small because of they were all relative to the size of wherever we were. And we were able to gradually pivot and, and steer ourselves into the right position. So it's sort of the tortoise and the hare story. Was there any time in the first month to two or three years where you guys thought, should we hit the pause button and should one of us go to business school? Or was there any sort of big choices about being as smart and adept and adroit at doing this where you were wondering if you needed help that the two of you didn't have to offer? Short answer, no. Longer answer, my mother is quite the academic. She was a teacher. And when we started this, she said, oh, great. Well, you'll do this and you'll go to business school because both my sisters had done uh, post-grad. She loved the thought of me going to business school and finding a real job. We've just been simple enough and, and old school enough with the, with the, the fundamentals and the, the finances of the company that I think we just continue to joke that we get our MBA on the fly every day. I'm guessing in the first few years, you were doing things ranging from taking out the garbage to making sure that you had the right information online to being literally a CEO and making big strategic and financial decisions. Could you just talk a little bit about wearing those many, many hats in the first few years? Still feel like more of an intern than, than a CEO. I think we, we started the business again, not knowing anything about anything in terms of retail, in terms of manufacturing, in terms of running a business. And we have mostly made it up as we got along, but it was also packing boxes. Every order that came in, it was Peter and I who answered the phone, who put the order in the computer, who pulled the product off the wall, put it in a box and got it out the door. Um, we haven't outsourced really anything. Uh, for the most part, the first ones to, to try each role and learn a little bit about what is entailed in running the company. And so once we do well enough to promote ourselves to the next job, we've done so and hired someone behind us to fill their shoes. And luckily, the people who fill our shoes each time are a little bit better than we were at it. And I think that's a pretty successful formula. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, but anything notable that would be valuable for the listeners to hear about things you might have chosen, you, you and or Peter might have chosen to do differently? We, we just laugh about, again, it, it's our inexperience was probably a, a, a big piece that we end up making silly decisions that someone with indi industry experience just wouldn't have even considered. But the way we imported goods and shipped them, the, the, the fact that we didn't go to a trade show for a while, we just drove around the country with product in our car and walking into men's stores. It's all been part of our process. For future entrepreneurs, it's always good to know that you are going to make mistakes. To what you're saying, if you go at the right pace and you can learn from your mistakes, it's all good. So huge thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Thank you, Sandy. Thanks for having me. It was so much fun chatting. The Career Whisperer is a podcast by Raising the Bar and is produced and edited by the ever-amazing Claire Frangiola. For more information about online classes, one-on-one -on -one career counseling, and free weekly Zoom discussions, please visit RaisingTheBar123.com or use the shortcut SandyGo.com. In our next episode, we will be addressing the struggles in the job search process. Subscribe to the podcast to stay tuned.